Well, I'd like to begin this morning by asking you to consider this question that is on the screen before us, which is more accurate. Things are true because they are in the Bible, or things are in the Bible because they are true. Well, I think you know that it is the second statement that is more accurate. In fact, the second statement is really the foundation for the first. Because there are true things in the Bible, we then are able to say, I believe the Bible because it is true. Uh, The fuller statement of this came from a woman by the name of Hannah Whittle Smith. She and her husband had a ministry together many, many years ago, and She is the one who really first said this. Look what she said. The Bible is a statement not of theories, but of actual facts. Things are not true because they are in the Bible, but they are only in the Bible because they are true. And what this is telling us is that Christianity is grounded in historical events. God's salvation is rooted in acts of history. God has intervened at actual times and actual places with actual people to accomplish events that actually happened. And those events are verifiable and we can believe them because they are actual facts. Now this is very, very important at Christmas time because before the very first Christmas there were 400 years of silence from God. I want you to notice these 400 silent years. The last recorded year in the Bible is about 425 B.C., That's about the time of the dating of the last book of the Bible, Malachi. Notice there were no prophets from God to the Jews during those years until John the Baptist appeared in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament are called the silent years. One other thing. There are no recorded miracles during those 400 years. Did you know that? God was really silent. Now, when at last God intervened again and said, I am fulfilling my promises, what would we expect? Well, we would expect that there would be a new prophet and a new round of miracles to tell us that the Messiah had indeed come. And that is exactly what happens. Once the 400 years were over, God began moving once again. Now this morning, we are coming to the end of this little Christmas series that I have been leading us in in Luke chapter 1, and we come to the final verses where we have the nativity of John the Baptist. And you know what we see? We see it's all about miracles, and it's all about fulfilled prophecies, 
so that we could know Christ is really the Lord, the King, the Savior of the world. And so what I want to do today is I want to do three things. Number one, I want to look at the miracles that happened. Then I want to see the prophecies that were fulfilled. And then I want to draw some practical lessons for us at Christmas time. So if you would take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 1, in the chair Bible in front of you, it is the third gospel in the New Testament. And this morning, we want to begin with verse 57. Let's take a moment, shall we? And let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that our faith is rooted in real events that accomplished real promises so that we could have a real Savior and a real relationship with God. And thank you that these things are infallibly placed in the Bible for us because they are true. And because they are true, when the Bible speaks, we can say we are reading and learning the truth. Guide us now into all truth by your Spirit who is present. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want you to notice as we begin that Luke teaches us this. That God used miracles to confirm His sending of salvation in Christ. And that's what we see over and over again in Luke 1. Now, let's pick it up as we see the nativity of John the Baptist. Verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Now let's notice the first miracle here. Number one, God directly named John through an angel. We saw that in the earlier part of the chapter, uh, nine months earlier. This angel appeared to Zechariah and said, You and your wife in advanced age are going to have a son, and you will name him John. Now, I want to ask a simple question here this morning. Um, how many of you got the name of your child through an angel? Okay, that relieves me. Uh, another question, how many of you think your child is an angel? That relieves me even more. <laughs> okay. Um, now, you know that in that early day, it was customary to name a son after a father or a grandfather. We do this very much today. Um, let's just do a little experiment here today, and let's include all of us. 
Um, how many here this morning were named after a parent, a grandparent, or uh, an ancestor, including your first or your middle name? Let's see. Wow. Okay, that's true of me. All right, my, my middle name is Robert after my father. Here's another question. How many of us named a child of ours after a parent, grandparent, or ancestor? Okay, all right. So we understand exactly what's going on here, all right? So um, uh, that's what the relatives and friends expected. And you can imagine, especially since Zechariah was a very, very important priest that the name would be passed down to their firstborn son. So they asked Elizabeth, all right, what are you going to name him? And notice in verse 60, she says, no, he shall be called John. And in verse 61, they said, that just simply can't be. So they asked Zechariah, who nine months earlier had been struck by the angel because Zechariah did not believe the promise of God's word. He had been struck mute and hearing impaired nine months earlier. And so he could not communicate verbally, so we are told that he asked for a tablet. Now, just in case you're wondering, this was not an iPad, not a Galaxy, Tablets have come a long way since those days. It was probably a wooden board covered in wax. And John writes down, his name is John. And they all, verse 63, wondered. You know what this tells me? No one do. John obviously had communicated the message of the angel uh, to Elizabeth in some way, but nobody else knew. Now let me ask you this question, what would you say if I told you an angel told me what to name my child? Well, this might be the last year I'm pastoring here at Bethel. You'd say, yeah, right, tell me another one. So you see the problem here? This has no way at this point of being verified. So notice the next thing that God did. God confirmed John's name through a visible, visible miracle. Look at verse 64. As soon as John's father, Zechariah, wrote down, his name is John, verse 64 says, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. This is a, a miracle. Now I want you to notice some things about this miracle. You'll notice that both his mouth and his tongue, we are told, were opened and loosed. Do you know that is a figure of speech called a zugma? Not a zumba, okay, but a zugma. And a zugma is where two redundant words are used 
to emphasize something. Now you can see that here. Obviously, if you use your mouth to speak, it includes your tongue. And obviously, if you use your tongue to speak, it includes your mouth. So you do not need to use both words in saying somebody could speak. So when he says his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, what it is telling us is what occurred was not only instantaneous, but it was total. It was complete. It was full. And it reversed nine months of absolute, total silence. Let me ask this morning, how many of us here today think we could all by ourselves on our own stop talking for nine months? Now, don't say there are some people I wish would stop talking for nine months, okay? But let me ask you, on our own, how long do you think we could go? I know what some of us are saying about our neighbors right now. Couldn't make it one day. But think about living the normal activities of life. We probably couldn't stop talking for a few days. That would literally be humanly impossible. You know what this is telling us? The silence at the beginning and the silence that was broken at the end were miracles that Zechariah could not perform on his own. This was not pretending. This was not performing. This was a miracle of God. And then notice the next thing that occurred. Many witnesses saw and discussed these events. Look at verses 65 and 66. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying... What then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? Did you notice that this miracle took place amongst a very large crowd? Back in verse 58, it says, The neighbors and the relatives gathered for this circumcision of John the Baptist. Do you know circumcision was so important to the Jewish people that when you circumcised a little boy on the eighth day, you had to have at least ten witnesses present to confirm the child was actually circumcised. That's how important this was to the Jews. Uh, Let me ask you this morning, how many of you think more than ten people came to this circumcision? How many think it was probably a lot more than 10? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Today, this would be like a baptism, like a marriage, like a graduation. 
And think about this. This is a firstborn child to a priest and his wife who had never been able to have children, thought they never would, and now here is this amazing birth in a small country town. This was a big crowd. A big crowd. And how many witnessed this miracle? Did you count how many times the word all occurred? in verses 65 and 66. Did you count them? Let me read them again, and you count how many times the word all appears. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their house. How many times the word all appear? Okay, I counted at least four. The text is laboring to tell us this was a huge crowd. All of them witnessed this. And then they began talking about it through the whole Judean countryside. Do you think this is why when John the Baptist went out into the wilderness and started preaching, crowds came to him? Absolutely. You see, the more witnesses you have and the more stories that those witnesses share that agree, the stronger the case for a miracle. Um, How many witnesses witnessed Jesus' resurrection? Well, we're told 500 at one time. And the Bible says some amongst those 500 initially doubted that it was really Jesus, but they were convinced by the evidence Jesus really is alive. And then all 500 told the very same story. We saw Jesus alive all when we were together at one time. You have the same here. You have the same here. This is an overwhelming number of witnesses to this miracle. You know what we're learning this morning? When God performs miracles, they are immediate, they are complete, they are unmistakable, and there are plenty of witnesses. And why does God go to all of this trouble at the birth of John the Baptist? And the answer is, he's the forerunner. He's going to point the way to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God wants us to know the things that we read in this Bible. They are true. They are true. Now let's continue on here. Secondly, as we continue in the nativity of John the Baptist, we learn this. God used prophecies to confirm His sending of salvation in Christ. 
Now on the screen, you notice that I have 11 prophecies from the Old Testament, and they range in date from Malachi, 400 and some years before Christ, to Psalm 18, a thousand years before Christ. Now, let me ask you again, remember, what else would be expected after the 400 years of silence besides miracles? Prophecy, right? God would begin to speak again. And I want you to notice what the Holy Spirit immediately led Zechariah to do. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and what? Prophesied. He prophesied. Not only did he prophesy, he prophesied about prophecies. Now that's mouthful. He not only prophesied, but he prophesied about prophecies. The verses that follow are the famous Benedictus, which is the Latin word for blessed in verse 68. So we have Mary's Magnificat that occurred earlier in the chapter, which we have looked at at seasons past. And now here we come to the end of the chapter and following these miracles at the nativity of John, his father Zacharias gives us the Benedictus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And what is interesting is that this is a prophecy that with these miracles, God was now fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Let me read it for you, and here's the interesting thing. There are more than 16 quotes or allusions from the Old Testament in what Zechariah does as he praises God. Here was a man who really knew his Bible, and by the way, he probably did not have his own copy of the Bible, so he knew these verses by memory, and I don't have the opportunity to put all 16 on the screen, but here are 11 of them. Now this is what I want to do. As I want to read through this praise song that is filled with these prophecies, as I come to the statements that Zechariah quotes directly from the Old Testament, I'm going to pause and I'm going to ask you to read them with me from these Old Testament passages. Now we know the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, they all spoke of the coming Messiah and His kingdom. Psalm 18 was a royal psalm. That's a thousand years before Christ. And as a royal psalm, it ultimately is fulfilled in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So it also is prophetic. So here we go together. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And Isaiah 59.20 says, let's read it together. 
a Redeemer will come to Zion. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is the horn of my salvation. In the house of his servant David, Jeremiah 23.5 says, I will raise up for David a branch. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, Psalm 18.3 says, I am saved from my enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And Psalm 18.17 says, from those who hated me. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And Micah 7.20 says, as you have sworn to our fathers, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. And Zephaniah 3.15 says, you shall never again fear. In holiness and righteousness before Him all our days, and you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. And Malachi 3.1 says, He will prepare the way before me to give knowledge of salvation to His people. And Jeremiah 31.34 says, They shall all know me. In the forgiveness of their sins. And Jeremiah 31.34 says, I will forgive their iniquity because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Isaiah 9-2 says, People in darkness have seen a great light. Wow. A prophecy about fulfilled prophecies. Now think with me. Think with me. Why is this so very important? Why? And the answer is, one day, John is going to appear in the wilderness. And when he appears in the wilderness in fulfillment of God's call upon his life, he's going to call people to a baptism of repentance in the Jordan River in preparation for the revelation of God's Messiah, Jesus. And those people like this Israelite 
had to be absolutely sure John was really God's messenger. Do we need to be absolutely sure? Yes, we do. And so the miracles confirm the prophecies, and the prophecies explain the miracles. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. The miracles and the prophecies work together. If we just have the miracles alone, we do not understand them. We don't know what they mean. If we have the prophecies alone, we can't be sure that God is really fulfilling them at this time. But when we put both together, the miracles confirming the prophecies and the prophecies explaining the miracles, they bring us to God's salvation in Jesus Christ. That's why after 400 silent years, this is so crucial. Now let me this morning bring this a little down to where we live today. And let's just mention as we Think about all of this. What are the spiritual lessons for us at Christmas? What does God want you to believe and to know? And how does He want to impact your life today because you believe what's written here? Let me give you three. Number one, God's Word has been confirmed and we can trust it. If you are here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I'm not real sure about this Bible. A lot of things in here I don't understand. Some things in here that just seem to me to not be what I experience or see or know, I want you to understand that God is saying to you, you can trust everything that's in this book because He has confirmed it. When God brings together miracles and fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, it is the strongest way that you could confirm something. In fact, I would say this. The only greater proof that God could give to confirm His Word is the raising of His Son. And of course, He did that to add to what's here. And you may remember what Jesus said. People said to Him in His day, Well, we don't believe your testimony. You're testifying about yourself. And remember what Jesus said? He said, if you won't believe me, then believe the miracles that I do. These testify of me. And he was exactly right. 
God has done everything necessary to confirm His Word, and you can trust it. My first year of seminary, there was a new professor. His name was Mark Bailey. And I had him as a new professor. Today, Mark Bailey is now the president of the seminary where I attended. Several years ago, we heard him preach at the pastor's conference in Chicago. And I'll never forget, he held up his Bible and he said to us pastors who were there, you can trust it. You can trust it. And he was exactly right. We can trust it. Second lesson I think that God wants us to understand at Christmas. Number two. Trials are designed to teach us to trust and to obey. Why did God let Zechariah remain mute and hearing impaired for nine long months? Think of the frustration that that was. Couldn't talk with his wife, couldn't hear her. All of his friends and relatives, the same problem. And the reason that God did that was because Zechariah had doubted what the angel said and had doubted God's word. And God allowed Zechariah to have this trial of muteness and the inability to hear for nine months to teach Zechariah to trust God's word and to obey what it says. And when Zechariah, nine months later, wrote on that wooden tablet with wax on it, his name is John, he had learned the lesson, hadn't he? He had learned the lesson. He had passed the test that when God says something, we can believe it, we are not to doubt it, and we are to obey it. You know, trials have a way of focusing our minds and our hearts. Trials have a way, as we go through them, of looking at what's wrong in our life and measuring what's wrong up to the Word of God and saying things are not as they ought to be. They're out of line with what God teaches. And therefore, I must adjust my thinking and I must adjust my living. And I would say this to you today. I don't know all that God is doing in your trials. He has many purposes. But I do know this. Whatever you are going through, God has permitted it to teach you to trust what He has said, to examine your life in light of it, And to obey Him. Because it's right. True. And His will. And then there's a third lesson that I think comes out of this. Number three. Our only unfailing source of joy 
is God's merciful salvation. We all remember what happened to John the Baptist at the end of his life, don't we? We all know what happened. He was imprisoned in a dungeon for preaching God's truth. And one day he was beheaded by Herod Antipas at the request of a simple girl. He was probably somewhere in his early 30s. His aged parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had probably died long before that. God spared them that trial. How many think it was of God's mercy that they were taken before their one and only child was beheaded? How many think that that was of God's mercy to them? And let me ask this question. How many think if that was the future of your only child and you knew it, that life would have little joy for you? How many of us would say today, If I knew that at the age of 30, my son would be beheaded in a cruel and inhumane way, that would not be the happiest of outcomes for our life. You know what I learned from this? Things in this life often fail us. And so many things fall short of a happy outcome. But let me ask this question. Where are Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John today? They're together in heaven. And why are they there? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. You see, if our joys are only in this life, we ultimately will be disappointed. But if our joy is in Jesus... We'll never be disappointed. We'll never be disappointed. And this morning, God has done what He's done for us and preserved it in Luke chapter 1 that we might learn these things. God's Word has been confirmed and we can trust it. Trials are designed to teach us to trust and obey. Our only unfailing source of joy is God's merciful salvation. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.
This morning, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, would you take a moment and reflect upon God's message to you? Maybe you need Christ as Savior today. You've never come and cast yourself upon His mercy, repented, trusted in Him alone as Lord and Savior. Maybe the barrier for you doing those very things is your lack of confidence in the Bible. And today God would say, Come to my son. He's the only way. Maybe today you are in the midst of a trial and God is seeking to teach you. And he would say to you today, come and lay your life before me. Let me have my way. Open your life to my word and what I have to say. Trust, and then obey me. Maybe you're pursuing the things of this world and seeking to find your happiness in people, in things, in the accumulation of all that this world can offer. And if you were to know the future, some of the things that might impact your life, you would say, boy, if I knew that was coming, there'd be very little joy for me. But if you know Christ, you can have a joy that will never end. Let God impact you today for His sake. Amen.